Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Robert Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Hey, everybody, it's an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics, and every week we interact with our amazing listeners, and Danielle's going to tell you all about it. No, I will not. Clayton Schofield's going to tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, for, first, I, I guess um, um, Aubrey's going to tell us what we have to read. And then um, we go and read it, and then we come back, and then John sets us up, and then Danielle, she likes to swear a bit, so if you're okay with that, (laughs) I'm okay with that, too. And uh, we just dive right in. Clayton Schofield! Yeah, book club member! Yeah, thank you so much, Clayton. That's another clip from our debriefing episode. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, please do. That was such a fun time. Send us that in was. those intros. If you send us one in, I'll bump you like to the front of the line. I have a backlog of all the ones from the debriefing episode. Those are really fun. Thank you so much, Clayton. Yes, thank you, Clayton. I also want to thank everyone for the well wishes. We had so many book oh, club right. members who reached out. They texted oh, me, yes. emailed me, DM'd, left nice comments. Everyone was really cool. Sorry to leave y'all hanging like that, but... Right, uh, yeah, we just... We couldn't do it, man. We had to go into emergency yeah. mode last week, yeah. and it didn't leave a lot of time to concentrate on anything like podcasting, <laughs> but that's just life, so thanks again for coming back. It was... It was... It was, it was awful. It was, it, was, it was a little stressful, you know, fucking things frozen and no power. And there are a lot of people who are still really struggling, like... Yeah. We... Yeah. I mean, comparatively speaking, I feel like we did really well and and we we feel really grateful yeah it was it was it was a tough time while it was happening but now we i feel like you know things are okay but there's a lot of people with burst pipes and they won't be able to get that stuff fixed for a long time or you know they maybe they can't get it fixed because they don't have a lot of money or it's just and you know so there's a lot of stuff that's 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 going wrong for a lot of people right now and or or whatever like their power bills are nine thousand dollars or something like that right yeah so there's a lot of people really really struggling and so uh while it you know while it did suck at the time we aren't really dealing with any ongoing problems so you know send all your well wishes to the people who are still dealing with all of that because there are people who really are sincerely struggling right now and we um we feel for them very deeply yeah 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 thank you for mentioning that um yeah you know if all if all we had to deal with was no water and no power for a couple days we were on the lucky side well that's i mean that did suck for like no power no water for a week i mean that was scary like you know we have these birds we're trying to keep them safe and all that stuff but uh yeah i mean that's there were people who didn't have heat and they were dying and they were, I mean, that's really hardcore. Yeah. And so we feel for those families and um, all of that. So yeah, comparatively speaking, we we're fine. Yeah. You know, we, we did really well. I mean, we're not injured or anything like that. So um, I'm just yeah. grateful, grateful it wasn't worse for us, but we, we feel terrible for the people who were so badly affected. Yeah. And thank, and thank you to the people who reached out to me, to me as well. And, um, um, yeah, we, we were fine over here. Like we didn't really have power. We never really lost water here because we're on a different water system, but, oh, that's, uh, okay. that's good. so, but, but, uh, we had no power, but like with my mom, she, she had a pipe burst and she finally got that fixed this week, but, uh, she still got a lot of damage in the ceiling. She's going to have to take, get taken care of and, Damn. you know, it could have been worse. Yeah. Less, well, yeah. Hey, yeah. no one right. died, right? Like that's scary stuff, but yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, so that's, yeah. So thanks again for everyone. Reaching out and showing us some love. I also want to thank Niklas. Niklas. Book club member. Yeah. 
Yeah, on our debriefing episode, he talked about he got interested in the Hellboy comic because when he saw the movie, they gave a promotional comic. Oh, right, yeah. In German, and it was like Seed of Destruction number one. That's neat. But it also had promos for the movie, and he scanned it over to oh, me. Oh, that's fun. In a PDF. Oh, nice. And another thing that was really interesting that he didn't mention is that it's all in black and white. Oh, okay. And so oh, wow. He was telling me that it adds a different huh. feel yeah. to, the, to the art. You know, if your first introduction into Mignola is black and white sure, art right. with no color and you're just seeing the black and whites. Uh, that's really interesting. That I really like that. Yeah. So I'm going to throw that up on our link tree or on our Facebook about section. So yeah, you can go check that out. Thank you so much, Niklas, for scanning that over and sharing that with the community. Yeah. Good stuff. Awesome. That's that's amazing. <laughs> Lawrence Campbell also had a birthday. Hey, so Lawrence happy Campbell. birthday, Mr. Campbell. Book, Book club, club member. Birthday. Happy birthday. Birthday guy. Yeah. So you can check out Old Haunts. It's in trade paperback now. You can also buy signed and numbered prints from his online store and sketchbooks. Really good stuff. And going along with our artist friends, don't forget to order your signed and remarked copies of Stomped. Issues one and two available in limited quantities on rossradke.com all of our artist friends we got matt strackbine over at the letter hack follow him there on twitter and at friends of strackbine on instagram and i've been also checking out jim glenn art he's one of our book club members as well okay and he's got some really cool art up on his social media so yeah what's that social how do you find that guy jim glenn that's jim glenn with two n's j-i-g-l-e-n-n dot a-r-t on instagram yeah, so check out Jim Glenn, book club member. Yeah. All right, and now we're going to go on to our listener feedback. Get out, trades and floppies. Get out, hardback copies. Digital is fine. Read along in time. Get we had a message out, from Andrew Cheever. Whoa, Andrew Cheever. Book club member. Book club member. He said, I stumbled across this weird little story, and it made me think of something from the Mignolaverse. Okay. And he linked me this article called The Man in the Iron Cylinder. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Okay, have not. so um, this is in Liverpool after the Blitz in World War II. Oh, the soldiers uncover a giant metal cylinder. Okay. And so... Over the next couple years, the cylinder just becomes like a minor part of the neighborhood. People use it as like a bench or children are climbing on it and playing on it or whatever. On one end of the tube, there was like a crimpled, uh, crushed part of it. Okay. And this one kid like was able to like look in there and he saw a skeleton foot. Okay. Okay. This thing has been sitting there for a couple years. Right. Oh, wow. So they open it up. Inside is an entire male skeleton about six feet tall, dressed in clothes of late Victorian style and with a portion of hair still attached to the skull. A brick wrapped in burlap stood instead for a pillow. Quite naturally, they believed the body to be a victim of the Blitz, but this was quickly ruled out. The clothes and other remains strongly suggested that a recent victim should be ruled out anyway. There was a London Northwestern Railway notice indicating the arrival of goods dated June 27th, 1885, and a postcard dated 1885. There were two diaries for 1884 and 1885, but unfortunately they were illegible. There was also a gold signet ring inset with a bloodstone and hallmarked 1859 and seven badly corroded keys. The left side of the skull was damaged, though the coroner would later conclude that this had happened post-mortem. Okay. 
An investigation was conducted, but the inquest into the matter ended with an open verdict of death by unknown means. Right. So they found a Victorian body in the yeah. 1940s in a giant metal cylinder. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, so if you're interested in that, there are a lot more details on that. Uh, just Google... Uh, man, in, man in the iron cylinder. So this ha- happened. Or... Yeah, that's a real thing. That's a real thing that happened. That's a that real thing that's ha- that happened, and you can look uh, it up. What the fuck? Wait, what the fuck? <laughs> what? That's... Yeah, thank you, Andrew Cheever. Someone needs that's to fucking... pull that into the Mignolaverse. That would be perfect. Jeez, let me think about this for a second. <laughs> that's wild. We also heard from Hayden Orr. Hayden Orr. Book club member. Yeah, his book club member. He said, I don't know if you guys were aware and had brought it up before or if Mignola has talked about it before, but there is a real magical group, quote unquote, of occultists in the late 1800s in London. It was called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and it sounds very similar to the Heliopic Brotherhood. I don't know if Mignola took inspiration from this real life group, but it's interesting nonetheless. They even had some very famous people of the time as members during its short one, like Algernon Blackwood. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and even Aleister Crowley. Yeah, Aleister Crowley. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole thing. Yeah, so um we did we have talked about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn a couple times. It's come up. A book club member AT Johnston. Oh yeah, yeah, book club member AT Johnston. He said book that number- uh he he sur- <laughs> <laughs> he surmised <laughs> that the name Michael Mathers from The Visitor is a nod to McGregor Mathers from the Hermetic Order sure. of the Golden Dawn. It was also mentioned... I think we've talked about Aleister Crowley a couple times, too. Yeah. We must have, right? A, a yeah. ton of times. Yeah. A ton of times, but not the Hermetic Order, per se. I thought we mentioned that, though. Did we not? Probably when we mentioned him, but also when we did the transformation of J.H. O'Donnell. Yeah. And all those flies come out. Yeah. And they're all based on like different mystical people. I think one or two of them was sure. members of the Hermetic Order I mean, of the Golden Dawn. I was able to go back. I searched through all my notes and all these things came up. Yeah. I was like, oh, here's all the places we talked about All those about weird it. boys. <laughs> we also have a new addition to the Weird Dreams segment. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Let's, let's hear it. Lay it on me. So uh, in response to Hayden's comment, Clayton Schofield said... Oh, Clayton Schofield. Book club member. That's right. Back in my university days, I took out several books from the school library about the Hermetic Order. I forgot what made me curious. After several days of reading this material, I somehow fell asleep on the sofa and was pulled into this crazy vivid dream, as if I was somehow summoned to a place on purpose by some weird force. Maybe I'm nuts and was just overtired from my studies, but it's something I still haven't forgotten. Just to wake from it felt like an incredible fight. It literally took something out of me to make myself wake up. Yeah, as if that something can be didn't really want me to wake intense. up. It bothered me enough that I wrote the whole experience down and returned the books immediately. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> That's fun. That's yeah. A fun. Weird dream yeah. segment. I like that. Send us stuff. all your weird dreams. Send us all those. Uh, <laughs> Hayden said uh, Larzad was trying to show him a vision of hyperborea. Sure. But, oh, I, yeah. but, but I think they were trying to turn him into a fly monster. Oh, wow. <laughs> so be careful, Clayton. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> we had some feedback on Witchfinder City of the Dead from our last episode. Ryan Yule said... Hey, Ryan Yule. Book club member. You got it. Remember there was that wall with all the flyers that I had to do all that research oh, for? Oh, man, yeah. And one of them yeah. said Norton's Pub. Norton's Pub is the bar in the goon. Oh, yeah. okay. All oh, right. cool. Yeah, so... Can't believe you missed that, John. I know. You're slipping here. Ryan, Mark Tweedo, and I'm Matt Strackbine all okay. pointed this out to me. 
So great oh. catch there. No, that's good to see. Yeah. We had a whole, all like, I can't believe you didn't catch this. We had a whole fucking wave of nerds just like. <laughs> Ryan also said the picture on Ed's wall looks like Monument Valley. Remember we talked about that cowboy picture he had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I don't know why I didn't right. catch that because that's like, it's in like every movie and they show the desert in right, America. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's good stuff. He said, I couldn't find an exact match, but there is a photograph called Cowboy with a View that is very similar. Mm. And so he linked a picture to that. And then he also linked a picture of him and his wife there, too. They visited. Yeah. Really cool. So, yeah, I would love to check that out. We were talking about Clayton earlier. He also said, what's with the left eye club? Lose it or give it. Grow it back or get someone else's. Join the club. Rasputin, Babiaga, Jurescu, and Hellboy. In Baltimore, which is the Outerverse, there is the right eye club. Yeah. But the rules over there are, are a little different. You lose the eye and never get it back. That's interesting. Well, I never so thought of that. But there's yeah. the two factions, the uh, the Eye of Ra and the Eye of Horus oh, people. Nice. So that's kind of a running theme. I love that. So if you think about Good who's connected there. to which thing, maybe that's a thing. I don't know. I love it. Good job. Yeah. We also heard from Mark Tweedo. Hey, we heard from Mark Tweedo, Aubrey. Book club member. Yeah, he's a book club member. Did you know that? <laughs> he said that his that. his he said that his favorite collective noun is an ostentation of peacocks. Yes. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> That's fantastic. That's good stuff. He was also surprised that I'm not cut up on all the comics. Mm. You know, I was looking at the reading order from here on out. I don't think I've I'm caught up on any of this stuff. That's I'm not. Fun. I'm you not, did that on purpose though to be more like because so that we could all. Read it together, right? Or did kind you... of it, it. It kind of happened on. Maybe I said it, said that it happened on purpose uh, after the fact, but it was like you just sort of fell off. This is what happens when you do a podcast about Hellboy. Oh, okay, is is when you're not when you have free time to read comics, you want to read other stuff. Yeah, and so my Hellboy comics are building up, and I know that they are, and I have the the book on my subscription box. But, and when, but here's when I go to Bedrock City. Yeah. Shout out to Bedrock City, my yeah. lo- local comic book store. Uh, when Bear I go rock. pick them up, I I bag and I board the comics and I put them in the, with all the rest of the comics. But I haven't actually read well, them because you're you're, you're like of, you're, I'm going to read it anyway. In the back of my head, I'm like I'm going to get to this. I'm going to get to this, and anyway. I'm going to thoroughly go through it yeah. with a fine tooth comb. So why comb. would so I? Yeah. Now I'm going to read, you know, Little Bird yeah, or absolutely. Silver Surfer or something else. That you know what sense. I mean? So anyway, you're uh, going to get to it anyway. So you yeah. might as well just read other stuff. I've been enjoying Strange Adventures. Some of the new DC stuff that's been going on, Immortal Wonder Woman is pretty cool. So, yeah, um, you cool. know, trying to, yeah, that's what I happens when you do a Hellboy podcast every week. John, is that what I happens have... when you do a Hellboy <laughs> book club podcast? I have been enjoying Saga, and I got Kathy to start reading it, too. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> Good job there. And also, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark Tweedo also said... What did Mark Tweedo say? Today I learned Americans don't really do morning tea or afternoon tea. Tea meaning a meal, not the drink. Yeah. Yeah. But so, but he means, but when he says tea, he means like a snack at like four o'clock p.m., right? Like that's, that's tea-ish? I want to do that. Thereabouts. I want to have a 4 p.m. So I don't actually really eat meals. I have like (laughs) snacks all day. Yeah. I just snack all day long whenever I want all the time. Yeah. So I just have I'm just snacking constantly. So I'm I guess you could say I'm constantly having tea. Okay. <laughs> but I don't call it that. I don't say, "Hey, we're just about to have tea." Right. What about you? If you're not from these places and you're from other places, 
Are there different names for meals that are not like oh, okay. breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Are there other meal times and names for these meal times? I would like to know, know that. Like That's a great question. In Thanks China, for that is out there. there like a snack time <laughs> name like tea? Like, is there a thing yeah. there? Like in or in Brazil, is there? If you're a book club member, let us know. I usually only eat like twice a day, yeah. sometimes less. Yeah. <laughs> what about other places in Europe? Is there a thing? Yeah. Tell us. Tell us what that is. Mark also said regarding Witchfinder City of the Dead, I think the story must have been an interesting challenge for Chris Robertson since the timeline had already been established way back in Hellboy Wake the Devil number one. So I didn't really catch that. I'm so glad Mark pointed that out. If you go back to Hellboy Wake the Devil, which is like one of the first stories, there's this part where Kate is doing the debriefing. She's giving all the information and she says, quote, Skip ahead to August 8th, 1882, Sir Edward Grey writes to Queen Victoria warning that a visiting nobleman named Jurescu is actually a supernatural being, plotting to establish a secret evil empire in England. August 19th, he writes that Jurescu has fled the country and refers to him for the first time as a vampire. I was like, wow, all that stuff is in oh, there. Man. Back there and yeah, so this story is kind of built around that little blurb that Kate gives in that first story. So really cool, Mark. Thanks for pointing that out. They also talked about bad air. Mm. He said this comment is likely from the commonly held belief that sickness was spread through bad air. Although it had been disproven in the 1860s, it would have taken decades for germ theory to catch on. Yeah. And he linked the- I mean, decades or Still now, yes. people do not believe it. So. Well, I, I was laughing at this definition he linked. The miasma theory is an obsolete medical theory that held that diseases such as cholera, chlamydia, or the Black Death were called by a miasma, a noxious form of bad air, also known as night air. The theory held that epidemics were caused by miasma emanating from rotting organic matter. I mean... And I, I started thinking like... Please don't let this become a thing again. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Listen, that reminds me of the the whole deal where people were talking about uh, humors and shit. Oh, okay, right, yeah. You have, like, bad humor. Your humors are bad. Yeah. You just need some essential oils on those Yeah, you need some essential oils (laughs) in there for sure. Please don't let that become a thing again. Yeah. Hey, hey, I got a uh, I got a message from Wes Matthijs. Oh, oh, hey, Wes Matthijs. Book club member. Yeah. So you'll remember when we were talking about uh, the right hand and how um, the Osiris Club got it at the end of Wake the Devil. Right. And how they said, yeah, okay. So, and I mentioned that I thought that Hellboy was pulled down into hell uh, at the end okay, of yeah. The Storm and the Fury. So Wes actually, uh, he sent me a message on that. He goes... Hey, Aubrey, hope all is well. I wanted to explore what you said about Hellboy falling into hell after he defeats the dragon. I went back and read The Storm and the Fury as well as the first book of Hellboy and Hell. Hellboy's heart gets cast into hell, and I think it's symbolic of his soul. His -hmm. body crumbles, and I'm not sure what happened to his right hand. Just thought I'd share. Not sure why. I keep coming back to it, but I had to tell someone, thought you might be the right dude. Anyways, (laughs) thanks for your time. This is catching on now, yeah. And then he sent all the relative uh, screenshots, so that was nice. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Very um, cool. I told him I was going to bring it up on the podcast, and he's like, oh, please do. And then he goes, he wanted to send us a, a regular Hey You Damn Guys email, but he became a father last week, and he didn't really have time. Sure, uh, sure. Then he goes on to say, Ben Stenbeck is one of his favorite illustrators, so I really need to do write you guys. <laughs> Aw, that's nice. Awesome. Yeah. And congratulations, Congratulations on your, yeah. yeah. Congratulations. They'll be eating pancakes any day now. <laughs> yes. 
Awesome. Awesome. All right. Now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. This week we're discussing... We're discussing Witchfinder. Witchfinder, The Gates of Heaven is a five-issue miniseries. I today. can't even. Anytime John will be like, "Hey, so I'm re- I'm reading Witchfinder," and I just interrupt him. <laughs> he can't even say it anymore <laughs> in the house. Earlier, like yeah. he can't even yeah. mention it at all without that happening. It's <laughs> today we're discussing issues one and two, which were published in May and June 2018. Written by Mignola and Chris Robertson. We're very familiar with Chris Robertson by now. Illustrated by Matt Brooker whose work most often appears under the pseudonym Disraeli, sometimes Disraeli Demon Drotsman. He's a British comic artist, colorist, writer, and letterer. Other pseudonyms he uses include Molly Air, a pun on Moliere for his writing, and Harry V. Dursey for his lettering work. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, cool. I, I was thinking, he's a British guy, and so I was thinking Disraeli... Might be a reference to Isaac Disraeli, an 1800s British writer and scholar, or Benjamin Disraeli, a former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He's worked on the sequel to H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds in graphic novel form, and Leviathan, a Victorian horror series which appeared in 2000 AD. He also contributed a two-part storyline to the Batman event No Man's Land with Paul Cornell, and he created Extinct a satirical series involving genetically modified dinosaurs for Judge Dredd magazine. Colors by Michelle Madsen and letters by Clem Robbins. I got to talk about this trade paperback cover. Disraeli does all the covers for the individual issues, but we get this awesome Tedesco cover uh, for the trade paperback, which is so amazing. Yeah, I'm like staring at it right now. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I love Ed Gray pulling that dagger out. That looks like the um, the Lipu dagger. Um, that we've seen in some of the other stories. So I'm excited about that. And then we also get the Disraeli cover. And I wanted to talk about this because, you know, I went back and looked at the Ben Stenbeck, Ed Gray, and stuff like that, and he has scars. But I guess I just never really noticed it as much until this artist. Yeah, you really notice it with this. This artist really go. he really, I don't know, there's something where they really stand out and they kind of look like the way scars really do. Yeah, yeah. You know, they kind of have like that pinkish raised skin, you know what I mean, and stuff like that. So, you know, on Ben Stenbeck, they're just kind of like black marks on his face. Right. They kind of almost just look like shadows. Well, I guess credit the colorist then with this because Oh, yeah, yeah, Michelle Madsen. Yeah, you got it. Really cool, really cool effect. I like that. We open in London, 1884. This is the next year after City of the Dead. So I like that these stories are taking place back to back. And we see the yeoman guarding the door. They hear a loud bam from inside. Oh, what's that then? <laughs> the fucking, I, do, I do a smashing impression of Christian Bale from The Prestige. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, uh, and that's what he's wanting me to do here. Just for your reference. This is a very inside baseball right now. Oh, yeah, well, you know Notch better than me, do you? <laughs> they open the door to investigate, and inside, there's a bright blue light. One of the guards sees a silhouette of a man in the light, and he's, like, holding some sort of round object. And then he disappears. 
And um, there is something about Disraeli, the art, how it's like against black. Mm. I don't know how to describe it. Again, but, I feel like part part of this is the colorist too, though. Right? I mean, yeah. Doing that because um, they'll completely abandon the line art in a lot of places. Yeah, it's really interesting. And like, look at this effect on the book with the blue light, yeah. and then when it fades, yeah, and just all the background. We're gonna see this a couple times, but it's just very distinctive. I think you talked about this last uh, on the last episode, Danielle. When you get the right mash of artists yes, and colorists, absolutely. you get like these really amazing effects, and it runs throughout this book. Yeah. This effect, I don't really know. I wish I was better versed in art theory to talk they're about communicating really well like it just seems it reminds like me really... like of uh it reminds me like of batman the animated series like it's on black it's paper, on black exactly yeah and that's what this looks like yeah. it looks like it's on black and it just gives it a really distinctive look that runs throughout these at least these first two issues yeah it was a ghost he tells the other yo men his face here, he's so disturbed and upset. Yeah. <laughs> he gives a he's lot of so personality upset. to these guard here. On the next page, we reveal that it's actually the Tower of London. So we just talked about the Tower of London in the last story, City of the Dead. We talked a lot about the Ravens and the Raven Masters at the Tower of London on that episode. But we didn't actually discuss the building as much. Officially, Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London is a historic castle in central London. It was founded towards the end of 1066 as part of the Northern Conquest. The White Tower, which gives the entire castle its name, was built by William the Conqueror. The tower is a complex of several buildings set within two concentric rings of defensive walls and a moat. There have also been several phases of expansion under later kings. The Tower of London has played a prominent role in English history. It was besieged several times, and controlling it has been important to controlling the country. The tower has served variously as an armory, a treasury, a menagerie, the home to the Royal Mint, a public record office, and the home to the Crown Jewels of England. Today, the Tower of London is one of the country's most popular tourist attractions. Under the ceremonial charge of the Constable of the Tower and operated by the resident governor of the Tower of London and keeper of the Jewel House, the property is cared for by the charity Historic Royal Palaces and is protected as a World Heritage Site. Would you like a fun fact about the Tower of London? I would like a fun fact about the Tower of London. Several ghosts have been reported oh. seen there. Most famously... Several what? Ghosts. Yeah. Most famously, Anne Boleyn. Oh, a song was even written about this ghost. Also reportedly seen, Henry the Sixth. Lady Jane Grey, Margaret Pole, and the Princes in the Tower. Mm. I was like, the Princes in the Tower? What's that? So, the Princes in the Tower is an expression frequently used to refer to two brothers and only sons of King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville surviving at the time of their father's death. They were 12 and 9 years old, respectively, and they were lodged in the Tower of London by their paternal uncle and regent, the Duke of Gloucester, who would later ascend to the throne as Richard III. It's unclear what happened to the boys. After the last recorded sighting of them in the tower, it is generally assumed that they were murdered. A common hypothesis is that they were killed by Richard in an attempt to secure his hold on the throne. So his uncle murdered the two little boys Yikes! in the tower. On January 1816, a century outside, the Jewel House claimed to have witnessed an apparition of a bear advancing towards him, and he reportedly died of fright a few days later. Hmm. In October 1817, a tubular glowing apparition was claimed to have been seen in the Jewel House by the Keeper of the Crown Jewels. 
he said that the apparition hovered over the shoulder of his wife, leading her to exclaim, Oh, Christ, it has seized me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> was that a fun fact or what? Wowzers. <laughs> that was very fun. <laughs> <laughs> but another reason that I want to bring that up is Ed Gray's talking to this guy and he's like, did it look anything like a bear? Uh, that's what that's a oh. reference to. Okay. Ed Gray also, fun. he also references the ghost of Lord Jeffreys. Lord Jeffreys was a vicious and severe judge in the 1600s. He was known as the Hanging Judge and the Bloody Judge due to his reputation during the Glorious Revolution. Jeffreys tried to flee, but he was caught. He asked the Lord Mayor to protect him from the public because he had been so vicious and hung so many people that he was like, oh no, now they're going to get me, so please right. save me. So they housed him in the Tower of London, and he was there until he died of kidney disease. Okay. So I like this giant ass skull in the uh, case behind this uh, Ed Gray standing. In oh front right, of. there's like a giant skull. That is so cool. I didn't even notice that. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah, I was trying to look at some of these artifacts. I love how upset this one guard is. Still, you he know, is. he's like really freaked out. The yeoman says it was shaped like a man. Gray says to check if something has been stolen, and sure enough, an item is missing, described as a pentacle disc of unknown provenance. It is cross-referenced in the directory with the Amaldi affair. So Gray says, Amaldi, ah yes, that business with the Italian opera singer and the witch's curse. I confiscated that pentacle from the witch's effects after she drowned in the Thames. I couldn't find a reference for any of this stuff. It was driving me crazy. I spent like an hour looking for... Amalfi Amalfi is in Italy and that is an island there and so when he says Italian opera singer I'm looking for like an opera singer from Amalfi or something like that and I wasn't able to find anything I wasn't able to find anything about a witch's curse I did find something about a witch that drowned in the Thames that was one of the very first witch drownings or you know where they would say like recorded oh, I mean I'm sure there were yeah, plenty that weren't even recorded where but, they're just throwing know, women into the fucking river exactly exactly so I did find that but I couldn't find any of this other stuff, and it was kind of driving me crazy because I was like, why are they putting this in here if it has no historical I just assumed reference? it was a reference to another adventure that he had had that I completely forgot about. Maybe it is. So. Maybe there. Maybe we'll see that someday, or maybe they're leaving that open for something, but it it was making me mad that I couldn't oh, no. find anything about this. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> oh, no. It'll be all right. Anyway, that's all good. Maybe uh, Tweedell can shed some light on that for <laughs> Let us. me know if you know what the Amalfi affair is or any of this other stuff. Yes, yeah, I agree with Danielle. I thought it was just a past adventure of his. <laughs> yeah, I figured it was just something I had forgotten about or just some, like you said, some sort You're probably of right. thing they threw in there to just make it look like he's had a million adventures yeah, yeah. and then maybe later they'll they'll show that or I don't know. So who knows? Grace says the pentacle isn't the most powerful or dangerous but if it can be stolen, others are at risk. Gentlemen, this is a worrying development, to say the least. I like when he says stuff like that. <laughs> I like those little <laughs> phrases. Yeah. Back at his apartment, gray journals of the day's events, how the yeoman thought it was a ghost. Stuff and nonsense, Gray says to himself as he's stretching in the chair. I love that panel right there where he's like, stuff and nonsense. <laughs> oh yeah it's really good but like the bookcase you see like this is what i'm talking about that's like that same kind of 
effect that we saw. I really love that. It's very. This is where it very. It started to stand out to me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, this artist is really doing something here, and it's like I'm starting to pick up on it. I really like that a lot. Yeah. I wonder if it's like you know, because um, I haven't looked at the, uh, the the sketchbook or anything. I'm like, I'm wondering um, if it's just something like he, the artist and the colorist got together and be like, hey, so when you do the shadows, make everything black, but then turn the line art into the color. Right. Or I wonder yeah. if you know uh, the artist sent some of that to him and like, hey, what do you think about this? Does this is this cool? Right, and yeah. if the artist was like, hell yeah, yeah. And go with that or whatever. I don't know. So it's Michelle Madsen, right? I'm really yeah. enjoying her colors and like. It's like we we're talking about with like you know Dave Stewart, how he'll adapt his style to fit the artist, and she's right. clearly adapted her style to yes, fit this artist exactly. Um, she's so, got good communication, yeah, like stylistically, like, and I'm sure this is it's true that they're talking to each other about it and getting together on that, but um, that's not even what I'm talking about when I like I I I mean I just mean like when the the art informs the colors and the colors inform the art, and you it seamlessly kind of pick up on it like. The way Dave Stewart and Mike Mignola, I mean, I'm sure that they both just kind of get it and they just go with it and it's always, right. you know, you the for the most part, it's going to be good. Exactly. Whatever, so yeah. it's like having a really good jam session. That's kind of what it feels like when you're looking at this art. Yeah. It's good stuff. I like that. Uh, just real quick, he's he's dipping a pen in an inkwell here. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's like he tried the newfangled thing and was like, ah, <laughs> I'm going to go back to the the thing I'm used to. You're right. Well, you've, been, or, you've been you've been paying attention yeah. to the pen through line. Whom's amongst us though hasn't well, tried a new different style of a thing and been like, yeah, I'm gonna stick with my old thing. I like that one a little bit better, right? But it, he could actually just be filling up the reservoir in the pen because that's how you do it. You would. Oh, is that uh, how you do it? Okay. It, it would like it has like the lever on it and it will like, suck the the ink out of the well. I don't oh. see a lever though. Well, it's probably on the back side. Okay, all right. Because you would lift it with your thumb, wouldn't you? Sure, we'll go with that. That's that's know. probably maybe what's that's going what on. it is. Maybe that is what it is. Let us know what um, you think or, of the listener feedback. But I like his or, his inkwell and the nib. I like that that's in the foreground. I think that's a really good shot. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. Well, I like that they're. I, li- I like that they are um, including that in here because it's been really prominent so far. Yeah. So I'm digging that. It could also be. Uh, like he carries around the one with the reservoir when he has to use it out in the field. But when he's at his desk, he wants to be a little sure. more formal with the inkwell. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like, uh, I just I just really like that, the aesthetic of that. And I like that we see him using this so often. It's awesome. Yeah. Anyway. Um, in this shot, old Bailey comes in. Good old Bailey. Good old Bailey. With the Times paper. And as he gives it to Gray, he says, judging by the headlines, it would appear that Greenwich has been chosen to be the global prime meridian, as if London wasn't already known to be the center of the civilized world. Mm. So I did have to look this up. In 1884, the prime meridian was defined by the position of the large transit circle telescope in the Meridian Observatory. The transit circle was built by the 7th Astronomer Royal Sir George Biddle Airy in 1850. The crosshairs in the eyepiece of the transit circle precisely defined longitude zero degree for the world. Before this, almost every town in the world kept its own time. There were no national or international conventions which set how time what should be measured. Shit? Or when the day would begin and end. Or what length work? an hour might be. What the fuck? 
There were two main reasons for this choice. The first was the fact that the USA had already chosen Greenwich as the basis for its own national time zone system. The second was that in the late 19th century, 72% of the world's commerce depended on sea charts, which used Greenwich as the prime meridian. So they just decided... This is going to be it's it. Wild. I've never even thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Before. Oh, that's like anytime you hear anything referred to as Greenwich Mean Time, that's what they're talking about. Um, yeah, I've, no, but uh, I just mean I've never thought yeah. about like what was it before? Like, was everybody was just doing their own thing, man? Let's go back to that. <laughs> I'm just curious. I. Uh, it is kind of weird how everybody was using their own times and. They had to nationalize the uh, time zones just be- just to get the trains to run on time here in the oh, states. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow, man! Everybody, it's this time from now on. I guess. Except you for can't... when you have to set it forward or backwards. Free- freedom of speech. Uh, I get to pick my own time. Oh, man! You can't tell me what time it's supposed to be. Yes. Only God can tell me oh, what time no. it is. Oh, that took a left <laughs> turn. <laughs> You're trampling my freedoms by telling me what time it is. <laughs> I will decide what time it is for myself. I'm going to have my sundial out here. Freedom of and speech. And that's what's going to tell me what it is. <laughs> Except when it's overcast, then it's uh, then I'm just not going to work. You believe in the sun? <laughs> yeah, okay. Aubrey believes in the sun, everybody. Oh, this guy no. over here. No, no, no. <laughs> I would, you won me over. I would love to see this, though. I would. Can you imagine the chaos? Just the fucking chaos of it all. But back to our story here. Ed Gray is looking at the newspaper. Oh, first he says, more like the center of the uncivilized world. You know what I mean? I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) He's not fucking wrong. And he looks in the paper. He sees a headline that says, ghostly apparition and unexplained death at the British Museum. Whoa. So we go over to the British Museum in Bloomsbury. The British Museum was established in 1753, largely based on the collections of Irish physician and scientist Sir Hans Sloane. Its permanent collection of some 8 million works is among the largest and most comprehensive in existence, having widely been collected during the era of the British Empire. Collected. There you quote go. Unquote, fucking stolen. Yeah, and so we see this uh, Egyptian head. This might be a reference to the tomb of Ramses II, which is on display in that museum, although the damage is on the opposite side. Okay. So I noticed that. Maybe maybe that's just a mirror. There you go. Well, and also, like, uh, it's, you know, we don't know, like, if the photo was reversed or if they were working off of a different, like, reference or I don't know. Who knows? There, Gray talks to Mr. Chalmers. And he finds that he's not the only one that has come looking for clues. Gray suspects that the other visitors are the Heliopic Brotherhood. But instead, Chalmers says these guys are coming from Oxford. Uh, again, there's more of this work. I, I, so eye-catching to me. Like when they're walking through these aisles and it's all outlined. You know what I mean? Very cool. And so Gray meets... Uh, I love this because there's all this blood everywhere. And then these like three nerds are like, ooh. They're like all investigating. They're all excited. This old guy is Professor Pritchard, and he knows about Ed Gray already, and he's pretty psyched to meet him. He, like, gives all these details. The other two Brits are Simon Broom, so he introduces himself as Mr. Simon Brudenholm. So is that, like, Professor Broom's dad or something like that? I guess. Professor Broom's dad. So, you know, because they're part of this secret society. So, I don't know. This is so interesting. That is interesting, That's a nice little detail. I like that a lot. I I just assumed it was uh, Broom's dad. And Miss Honora Grant. All right, then. 
Gray talks more with Chalmers. Apparently, he was there to catch the barest glimpse of the apparition. And when it disappeared, poor Godwin was on the ground bled white. Gray notices the dust isn't uniform on a nearby shelf. I like this little thing. It's almost like a Sherlock Holmes. He's like, oh, there's a little circle where there's no dust here. Something's missing. Chalmers goes to check the ledger. And Pritchard, the old guy, tells Gray that his crew have investigated too, and they're happy to offer their services to Gray. Gray's like, uh, yes, well, um... (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there are so many details here in the background. You know, I did some limited looking. I did try to look for whatever this weird fish statue thing is, because that reminded me kind of of A, but it almost looks like it has like a right hand of doom or something on it. So I was wondering about that. There's some cool mass. I looked for this statue. I couldn't find it, the statue that's missing the arms. Um... Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff back there. Let me know if any of these are based on real things. Look at this weird rabbit thing. Are you looking at this? What? It looks like two Furbies stacked on top of a goblin. <laughs> it does kind of look like that. What is that? I just I just told you <laughs> what it was. I don't know. It's pretty cool, though. Isn't I do like weird? this. I like this a lot, actually. I would like to... You know the, who should make that? Skeleton crew. Skeleton crew <laughs> should make this. For sure. Do you see it, Aubrey? I do now. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> I like this guy. I like this guy too, right here. What's this guy? I, yeah. That actually looks like maybe like an Aztec thing or nice. something. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, all these things kind of resemble something. These are great. Like, this head down here, doesn't that kind of look like Darwin? Oh, I was looking at the uh, the two figures above the head. That kind of reminds me of um, Hellboy's brother and sister. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot um, of cool stuff back there. Yeah. So Chalmers finds what's missing. He says, ah, it's an artifact recovered in the Assyrian tomb by the Arbuthnot expedition. So um, this might be a reference to Admiral Mario Arbuthnot from 1794. He was a British admiral who commanded the Royal Navy's North American station during the American War for Independence. There was also uh, Michael Abbotnot in 1974, but that would have been way after this story. But um, it might be like in terms of the writing team or something, because he was like an actual archaeologist. Uh, I thought that might be more in line with this reference. Anyway, I like the look of this item, too. It kind of goes with that golden pentacle item that they found earlier. Back at St. John of the Cross Hospital, we're back with Ed Gray's crew. We've got Mr. Silk having his tea and cake. We got Dr. Manley and Lewis. Grace says, I must say, Mr. Silk, it is somewhat galling to have only learned about the case by pursuing the bloody newspaper. Steady on, Grace, Silk says. We would have brought you in on this in good time. As it happens, I thought that fell within your ballywick. As soon as we began the autopsy, <laughs> Lewis says. And then Manley's like, I made that suggestion first, Dr. Lewis, if you recall. So I really like this because uh, the same thing happened in the last story. Yeah, they're always trying to one-up each other. Exactly. (laughs) It was so funny. I like this little through line of the two doctors always trying to be better than the other. Gray asks what caused the victim to be bled white. Then we get this grisly discovery on the next page. Yeah, the victim's hands have been chopped off. Good lord, Gray says. Lewis and Manley also explain that the actual hands were not recovered. And uh, suddenly Ms. Goad comes in. With a rather important message for Gray. 
And I like this because he's all grumpy at first. He's like, who would require my? And then he's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) That face he makes is great. Yeah. It's the queen, right? Her royal majesty. This is Queen Victoria. And Disraeli does a good job of. So he draws it exactly it's like your her. royal highness. Your royal highness. Sorry. And the no, but it's the first time you're addressing the sovereign. It's your royal highness. Here he says your majesty. So I don't know if that's like changed, <clears throat> or if it's an oversight, or like I don't know. They've had other scenes together. No, no, no. The first time, any time. Oh, okay. You go. See, interesting the first time you when you're in, have an audience or whatever the only fucking reason i know about this because i absolutely do not <laughs> care but because i fucking watched the crown <laughs> I, mean, I do not care about these people but i watched it anyway i can't fucking tell you why i did that it was on in the background while i was doing other stuff well, Give me because a break. we're but in a pandemic and we're we in a pandemic because we couldn't go anywhere so i would just have everything on <laughs> just one at one thing at a time until we completely exhaust netflix <laughs> of every single minute of content that's on there but it's just on while i'm doing stuff i'm cleaning the kitchen i just have it on whatever it is so i i this was a thing that they made a point of they were like oh you're doing it wrong <laughs> isn't it a ridiculous what a oh. what a disaster how she addressed people incorrectly or something so wow. apparently it's supposed to be uh or it was like whatever is like uh, kennedy and, and jackie when they came up right, they right. were like Ah, oh, your royal majesty. And I was like, oh, it's a disaster. Oh. Yeah. Everyone was fainting and shit because of this or whatever. And so apparently it's supposed to be uh, when you're dressing the sovereign the first time you're in the room with them, you go, oh, your royal highness. Ah. And then after that, it's. Like, your majesty. No, after that, it's like ma'am. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is shocking. It's, what's up, Duterino? Yeah, exactly. It's shocking. <laughs> and so he says your majesty, which I guess maybe it was correct for the time right, so i have no right. fucking idea because again i do not care okay. beyond what netflix fucking showed me i don't give a shit about these people maybe but that's, that was interesting right maybe they didn't have the crown when this was coming out they yeah that oh. so there you go <laughs> yeah but uh disraeli does a good job of resembling the actual queen victoria yeah for sure she was queen of the united kingdom of great britain and ireland from 1837 until her death Known as the Victorian era, her reign of 63 years and seven months was longer than any of that of her predecessors. It was a period of industrial, political, scientific, and military change within the UK and was marked by a great expansion of the British Empire. In 1876, Parliament voted her the additional title of Empress of India. Queen Victoria tells Grey that she could not put her message in a letter. It's best that their subjects do not know the full extent of Grey's service. And she mentions some of the dangers they faced. And I love this next page, right? We got some really great flashbacks. Um, The first flashback is to Murderous Intent. I think that was the name of the story where they were trying to pull, uh, they were trying to kill the queen. There was a reference to those three witches in the last story. And then here they talk about the Wolf of Kintyre and the Sad Tragedy of the Marquess's Son. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't. I do not. I couldn't really find any really references to that. The Wolf of Kintyre. I did find like a picture that somebody had drawn of it, but I, I was like, okay, so this is obviously a thing, but what right. is it? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I couldn't really That's find anything about it. We also see um, Ed Gray fighting Drescu and all the Romanian evil empire dudes from the last story. 
Queen Victoria tells Grey that something has been stolen, the very existence of which you will withhold from even your closest associates. You are not the only servant of ours who labors in the shadows, Sir Edward. Godspeed on your way. And so she gives him this card, and it's got this symbol on it. So did you recognize this symbol, did either of you all? It's I know the- I've seen it. It's a so it's a sword and an anvil and a triangle. Right, yeah, and yeah, and Aubrey, you said you know that we've seen it. So I don't know if you guys remember in Hellboy and the BPRD Black Sun, that was the story with Hellboy. He fought a bunch of Nazis. There was the UFO and all that kind of stuff. There was a guy all dressed in white with a white hat that came out and helped them. Do you remember? Hmm. He like assisted Hellboy. Okay, and um, and then at the end, he went back to his own little team, and it was this group. He was in this room with all these people, and they had that symbol on the wall. Oh. I recognized it. (laughs) Yeah, so this organization has been around since the 1800s, and then even in the 1950s, it's still there. So I kind of like that. You know, they're kind of building other stuff that was going on behind the scenes, and we know that Broom's dad was a part of that. So all this is really cool. One thing that we didn't mention that I wanted to mention was the, the light work, the light coming in from the windows and oh, yeah. when Gray is meeting with Victoria. That is really cool work. And all the shadows that you have to do as she's turning her head, you know, just really impressive work by Disraeli and Madsen on these pages with these giant windows and the light coming in. Going back to the symbol real quick, the sword design kind of reminds me a little bit of the sword um, in the BPRD logo. Yeah, no, I mean, I love that because if you think about it, you know, it Broom's dad, and then Broom yeah. is the next step. So it's like the sword's in the anvil, and the next step is you take it out, right? And then that's yeah. very symbolic with Hellboy, because he did take the sword out of the stone or whatever, right? So, very cool. Thank you for mentioning that, Aubrey. We cut over to Caliburn Ironworks and Shipbuilding Limited and Isles of Dog London. This might be a reference to Thames Ironwork and Shipbuilding Company Limited. This was a shipyard in ironwork straddling the mouth of the Bow Creek at its confluence with the River Thames. Ed Gray, he goes to check this place out. He's got the address, and there's this one guy. He's like, ah, you don't got no business here, chummy. Best move along before things get unpleasant. Ed Gray's like, he holds up his little card. And then that guy, like, straightens out really quick and lets him in. Ed Gray checks it out, and I love this panel where he's like, good lord. We get this huge double-page spread showing all the collection inside this place. We're going to learn this is the foundry, right? So I want to talk about some of these machines here. I love the look of these things. Oh, yeah. It's kind of got like that steampunk and all that steam-powered. What is this giant thing, though? It kind of, you know, um, it made me think of Hollow Earth. Remember they found like that submarine in the middle of the Earth and stuff like that? That's the first thing I thought of, too, when I saw it. Oh, okay, yeah, that's very cool. It's like a train blimp or something. It's like a helicarrier that's also a tractor. I don't know. (laughs) I assumed that the wheels were separate from that thing. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, okay, that's how they just drive it around, and then it, like, goes up in the air. That makes a lot more sense, Aubrey. (laughs) and the members they come up and meet ed gray so we've got three dudes here we've got colonel burke he's the guy in the army outfit we've got professor maddox he's the bald guy and then we've got major singh they all introduce themselves to ed gray welcome to the foundry burke says 
Uh, I'm uh, digging Burke's mustache. Yeah. <laughs> He's got those little curlies on the ends. And then we get this ominous scene at the end here. We see this little, like, kind of Weasley guy. He's building this experiment. We see all these different, like, gold pieces. And if you look closely, we see those two pieces that were stolen in this issue. We see that golden pentacle, and then in his hand, he's holding the other little piece. And it, and they all have that same design as that little fork that's on the box. Oh, yeah. It, that kind of reminds me of Anum's fork that was on the back of the sledgehammer armor in Iron Prometheus. That was kind of like where it harnessed the Vril or whatever. So I wonder if this has something to do with that. This little creepy guy, he's got an assistant. And she's like, this doesn't seem right. What if someone gets hurt? And he's like, take heart, Miss Ashton. Sacrifices often must be made and corners cut along the way. But it's all for the greater good. And remember, there is always a price to be paid for progress. And we see in this box over here, we see the two hands from Godwin. So I guess like he's appearing in these like portals and disappearing or something. So I guess when he disappeared, that dude's hands were in the in the space, you know what I mean? Ah, yes. They got caught in the teleporting and so his hands just like teleported clean off. Ugh. You know what I mean? I think that's what happened cuz he's been like appearing and disappearing in all these places and stealing stuff. You know what I mean? And they said that guy Godwin was fighting him, so he was fighting him, and in the middle of that, the dude disappeared and he took his hands with him. Ugh. Yikes. <laughs> Chapter 2. We get another really cool cover by Disraeli. Issue 2 opens up in Khyber Pass, Afghanistan, 1879. Khyber Pass is a mountain pass in the Khyber province of Pakistan on the border with Afghanistan, an integral part of the ancient Silk Road. It has long and substantial cultural, economic, and geopolitical significance for Eurasian trade. Throughout history, it has been an important trade route between Central Asia and the Indian subcontinent and a vital strategy military choke point for various states that came to control it. We see some military personnel checking caves for rebels. At this time, the Khyber Pass was part of colonial India. These guys look like kind of colonial guys. And this one guy is Colonel Burke that we met in that at the end of that last issue. And we see he falls through the cave floor below. And he's astonished by what he finds. And again, the, the light work um, between these two artists, Disraeli and Michelle Madsen. I don't know if they just like created so many moments where it just really shines. But it seems like... The book really highlights this light and dark thing that they're doing yeah. here. Yeah. So when Burke fa falls down there, he finds these like massive machines, you know, these steam powered machines. You know, they remind me of the machines from Hollow Earth again, like the ones that the proto humans made and stuff like that. He tells the guy to send word back to base that we need a team of sappers. You know, I had to look that up. Sappers are combat engineers. A combatant or soldier who performs a variety of military engineering duties, such as breaching fortifications, demolitions, bridge building, lane, or clearing minefields, preparing field defenses, as well as working on road and airfield construction. And he says for them to bring along a block and tackle. That's that mechanism consisting of ropes or one of more pulley blocks for lifting or pulling heavy objects. I didn't know what that was. He also said toot sweet. Do you know what that is? I just thought it was like slang for like hurry up or ASAP or something like that. Yeah, it's something like <laughs> that. Yeah, no, it hurry does up, mean it means like right now, hastily. right away. This term 
arose in the First World War when American soldiers were sent overseas to mingle with foreign allies for the first time. Toot sweet is a mangled version of the French phrase toot de sweet, which ah, means okay. immediately or right away. Right. So they heard them saying that and then they just made a mangled American version of it and then it became an actual thing. Okay. <laughs> So that's kind of how Colonel Burke got involved with all this stuff, right? It started with that one thing. So Colonel Burke, he he brought the machines back. And Professor Maddox says the artifact is ancient but remarkably sophisticated. He believes aspects of its construction could be adapted, although he doesn't know what it was originally meant for. Burke says that Major Singh also found something when he stumbled onto some tomb robbers with the 2nd Bengal Cavalry in Kaffir El Delwar. And so uh, there's so much trivia. Like when I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, the historical fiction is so rife in the story. Jeez. The second regiment of the Bengal Cavalry, also known as the second Bengal Lancers, was an irregular cavalry regiment of the British Indian Army. And when he mentions Kaffir El Dawar, this might be a reference to the Battle of Kaffir El Dawar. This was a conflict of the Anglo-Egyptian War. The battle took place between the Egyptian army and the British forces. They found some odd items there, too. So they put together the foundry to kind of unlock these secrets or these technologies to try to benefit the British Empire. So the foundry was born. They go looking for weird stuff. We see like a step pyramid. So the step pyramid reminded me of Frankenstein Underground. Remember in Frankenstein Underground, all that crazy dinosaur stuff was under the step pyramid. Mm-hmm. When he fell through that. Right. So I thought that was really interesting that they included that. We also see them putting together all these machines on the ground. And that reminded me of the sledgehammer armor. When Johan finds it and he spreads all the parts out to try to figure out how it works. Mm-hmm. And then they also worked for the Majesty at her personal request. And we see them like looking at some light. I'm wondering what is this? They're looking at like a UFO or something? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like they're definitely flying the vehicle somewhere, so maybe that's where they're heading towards. Right. Just whatever it is, yeah. And so they're telling Gray all this, and he's like, okay, well, this is terribly interesting, but I have other demands. So I wonder whether we might get onto the matter at hand. I've been informed there was recently a theft of a sensitive item from the premises. And they mentioned one of their engineers, one of the foundry's engineers, you know, he was obsessed with steam power and discovering how the ancient people used it. But the foundry is more concerned with the mechanical aspects and adaptation of these like ancient devices. Sinclair's investigation, that's the creepy guy. So we're starting to put this together. The creepy guy that they're showing here in the flashback is the same creepy guy that we saw at the end of the last issue. And they say his name is Sinclair. His investigations into the machines led him into all manner of mystics and crackpots. We see Sinclair building that little suitcase-looking thing that we saw at the end of the last issue. And when they mention crackpots, Gray's like, a cult? You know the wheels are turning. He's thinking about the Heliopic Brotherhood. It was an artifact he insisted was a key. When the Foundry members attempted to dismantle the object for their research, Sinclair went into hysterics. Later, Singh was clubbed, and Sinclair and the device went missing. And so Gray starts asking them about the crackpots and mystics Sinclair took up with. And the Foundry members tell Gray they were lunatics. They used the electric eye of science to investigate the greater mysteries. I like that. The electric eye of science. Nice. That's pretty cool. 
<laughs> Gray's like, oh, I know who those lunatics are. I'll pay them a visit. And Colonel Burke says, since it's the Foundry's business, one of them should go with him. And so Singh volunteers, and Grace says, by all means, gentlemen, I welcome the assistance. I love that. He's like, hey, I'll use all the help that I can get against these crackpots. Amazing work here on the following pages, again, by Disraeli and Madsen. I just really love these scenic views that they do here. Um, on the following page especially, we see Gray yeah. and Singh in the horse-drawn carriage, and they talk about Sinclair. Singh says he didn't expect that Sinclair would be the kind to strike someone from behind. But Gray says, we never know what our fellow man is capable of until after the fact. I like that line. That's yeah. really cool. Gray and Singh arrive at the Universal Temple of the Heliopic Brotherhood of Ra this in page Piccadilly. This is so pretty. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Beautiful. It's outstanding. I really like all this. It's something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, Piccadilly is a road in Westminster, London. It's just under one mile in length, and it's the widest and straightest streets in central London. The street has been a main thoroughfare since medieval times. There are many cultural references to this street in songs and works of fiction, including The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is the Scientology of the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of the 1800s yeah. or whatever, right? This is the... Ugh. It's it, it's it's a statement, that's for sure. <laughs> Inside, they are met by August Swain, a.k.a. Liam Neeson. He's back. And he's all in, extravagant in his like little palace here. <laughs> the two standing behind him wearing a mask? <laughs> yeah. Well, remember in, in, uh, in the Service of Angels, some of them wore masks like that. Oh, right, right. Swain's like, ah, an unexpected guest. I guess you want to join us now? Because remember, he tried to offer Ed Gray a spot in the Brotherhood for him in the last story, City of the Dead. And Gray says, far from it. But he also says he hopes they can come together towards a common cause like they did before. So they start giving Swain all the details. And I love this. He's really interested at first. He's like, oh, he seems pretty game on. But then they give the name... Aldous Middlegard Sinclair. That's that creepy guy. And so I had to, you know, of course I had to take apart this name. Aldous makes me think of Aldous Huxley. Yeah. You know, author of Brave New World. Uh, Middengard. There is the Middengard worm. This is a gigantic worm-like monster that was under the care of Amaratha in Court of Thorn and Roses. The first book in an adult fantasy series of the same name by Sarah Mass. Midengard is also another word for Midgard, and we've had a lot of Norse yeah. mythology references in these stories. But I love the way that this page is taken apart, too, because we get Ed Gray's delivery on the bottom, and then when we turn it, we get yeah. Swain's reaction at the top. And it is so... <laughs> the face that he makes is incredible. He's so disgusted or whatever when he hears that name, and he's like, this interview is at an end. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but I will not be able to assist you. Good day to you both. And Gray's like, Swain, do you know? I said, good day, sir. Good day, sir. It made me think of uh, <laughs> 1971's Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, starring Gene Wilder and directed by Mel Stewart, based on the Roald Dahl book. There's a scene at the end where he says almost that exact line. Oh, right. <laughs> I said, good day. Yeah, so they point gray and sing out of there and i love this expression on gray's face because he brought sing there thinking like hey 
maybe this guy will help us. And they're leaving like, I don't know what that was about. Outside, Singh says, hardly the behavior of a man who has nothing to hide, wouldn't you say? And Gray's like, I should have known that they would have been mixed up in this business. If they have anything to do with your missing man, Major, I will assure you they will be held to account. He keeps telling him that. You will be held to account. I want to see when it's going to happen. Are they going to finally have Gray take down August Swain at some point? I want to see that happen. Me too. Back at Gray's pad, he journals some more. He and Singh will continue their search tomorrow. And Gray's also thinking about his other mission, the ghostly thefts at the White Tower at the British Museum. So I thought this was kind of weird. Like, he doesn't he doesn't understand that they're connected yet. I thought that he would have put that together. Uh, yeah, he really should have by this point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, that kind of light and dark work, you know, the black color with the line standing out is really amazing. I love the way it looks on this page. So much little detail there, like in the bookshelf and everything. I was trying to look for the tiny cow. I didn't see it in this issue. There are several spots where they show his desk, and I, I didn't spot the tiny cow. Oh, right. Unfortunately, I was like, where's the cow? Eh, maybe put it in a drawer. Yeah. <laughs> Bailey comes in, and he says there's someone to deliver a personal message to him. Even stranger, it's a little girl who won't even talk, and she refused to hand the note over to Bailey. And so Gray goes down there, and this little panel of the girl framed in the doorway is so ominous and cool. Um, again, the color work and the art is really amazing. It's very freaky. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I love the expression on this girl's face. There's something funny about it. I don't. I know it's not supposed to be funny, but she's just like completely out of it. He like takes the paper out of her hand. She doesn't even, there's no expression, right? He opens the note and it has the Heliopic Brotherhood symbol on it. Your presence is, is requested at Glaren Manor at your earliest possible convenience. And Gray is so outraged by this and he grabs a little girl and he's like, who sent you? He's like all shaking her. This, <laughs> I thought this was so funny how mad he gets at the little girl here. And then she just kind of snaps out of it, right? And she's mm -hmm. like, oh, you're hurting me. And he's like, oh, it's all right, little one. But she already runs off. And then he tells Bailey, again, inform the cook she needn't bother with dinner. It appears I'll be out this evening. It seems like that's a common thing he's like, where he has to tell Bailey that. I kind of like that. But... um <laughs> I just imagine the cook is sitting there almost, maybe she's almost ready with dinner or something. And he's like, damn it, again? Or, ooh, at least I get to take home something good to eat for me and the family. That would be cute, though, an exasperated, just a panel of just an exasperated cook. Yeah. <laughs> we need that one panel. Well, it's very, it's a very Batman Alfred situation. Yeah, yeah. Where he's yeah. trying to get him to eat a sandwich or something. And he's like, no time, no time, Alfred. I have to go fight crime. <laughs> <laughs> oh and christian bale is also sir edward gray too I yeah know. yeah that's perfect yeah. let's have a uh, michael kane as bailey <laughs> sir michael kane there you go oh you know what this is so weird this is so random i was listening to a podcast about world war one today there is a real sir edward gray oh wow okay that's fun i never real i never thought to look that up like yeah. hey i should look this up too that's fun there's a real guy that was named Sir Edward Gray. Nice. And he was oh, like wow. a military guy. Was um, he a was he a paranormal investigator? No, I don't think he had anything to do with that. Oh, well, that's, you know. Maybe I'll bring that up on the next episode. I should have researched that before I brought it up. Well, no, I mean, you can bring it up now and then talk more about it next time. Somebody will write in some listener feedback. There you go. It. <laughs> 
<laughs> so so it made me laugh when Gray was so angry with this little girl, and then it made me laugh even harder as he walks up to Glaren Manor. Look how angry he is as he <laughs> knocks on the door before so he's so angry, just already walking up there. But he but he uses the knocker. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess he's uh, he's still pissed at the Heliopic Brotherhood for killing all his friends in in the service of angels. So you can't really fault him for that, but it's still funny. And Gray is surprised to see Lord Glaren answer the door. He's like, "But you're dead." So I don't know if you guys remember Lord Glaren. He's come up a couple times in these stories. I always remember him because he has those little hair horns. His hair does those little horn things. Oh, um, right. <laughs> so he's the guy that unwrapped Panya in that flashback in Garden of Souls. He was the one that unwrapped her uh, where she came alive. He took, oh, wow. He took Panya under his wing and was teaching her to read and write and about English society, and he moved her into his estate, kind of sheltering her. At some point, Lord Glaren caught the attention of Ed Gray, and he fled to America, and then Gray followed him there and ended up with Morgan Kaler, and that was lost and gone forever. And in that story, they ended up killing Glaren. Well, uh, Morgan Kaler, a.k.a. Kurt Russell, shot Lord Glaren, and then when they went to go investigate the body, he was a zombie under the control of the witch heiress. Do you remember all that? Uh, yes. Now, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so Glaren takes him inside. He's like, well, no, I'm his brother, Michael Glaren. And Gray's like, you have a remarkable resemblance. And he's got his own little butler, Percy, that comes uh, checking in on them. And Glaren's like, oh, she said you'd be coming. That's what he says. He's like, ah, she said I should expect you at this hour. No idea why I had a reason to doubt her. And so Gray wants to know what he's doing there. Why did they summon him here? Glaren says, because she wishes to see you. As Gray is walking, he sees a portrait of Tefnut Trionis. Remember, he met her in the last story. And he thinks that that's who they're talking about. But they're like, oh, Tefnut Trionis is in Canada, actually. That's not the lady who I'm speaking and so I do want to point out this one little detail as they're walking down the hall. I don't know if you caught this. Did you see this little dog with the... You see in this one room that guy passes? I see it now. That is exactly from Garden of Souls. We see uh, right there. We see Panya building that. Oh, jeez. In one of the flashbacks, in one of the Guy Davis flashbacks in Garden of Souls. So as soon as I saw that, I kind of had an indication where this was going because of that one little detail right there. It really stood out to me. It's like a dog or something, Gross. but its head is just like a weird little metal whatever that is. So um anyway, you know, Panya's got her menagerie of animals and stuff like that. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. So, yeah, of course, we reveal it's Panya. And I love Disraeli's take on her because she looks like she has a skull head. Like, that's what yeah. a mummy would yeah, look like. Yeah, it's good stuff. Like, that's what a mummy would actually look like. And she's like, Sir Edward Grey, I presume. My name is Panya, and I've been waiting to meet you for a long time. A very long time indeed. I was just blown away by this. I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, I didn't either. But it also makes the behavior of the girl who sent him the note make more sense. Because didn't Panya also take control of somebody when we first met her in Guard of Souls? Yes, exactly. Good job there, Aubrey. She did the same thing to give that message. She, who did she give a message to? Was it Abe or was it Daimyo? It was one of them. It was like a map that was something was circled on or something like that. Or no, she drew something on the floor. 
It was yeah. something like that. I need to go back and look at that. I was pleasantly surprised to see Panya. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, so remember, they're kind of sheltering her in this house for a little bit. Later, the Oana Society offshoots from the Heliopic Brotherhood, and they take Panya to Indonesia or whatever. So this is like that middle ground where she's still like, oh, this is fun, being in society and stuff like that. Yeah. Having my experiments. I do love all the hieroglyphics and stuff like that like that she yeah, would awesome. that she would like choose that to adorn her place or whatever this little this chair that she's sitting in is so interesting i couldn't really find what that chair is but um it really caught my eye these statues also caught my eye and the egyptian pantheon was especially fond of zoomorphism with many animals sacred to particular deities cats to bastet ibises and baboons to thoth Crocodiles to Sobek and Ra, fish to Set, mongoose, shrew, and birds to Horus, dogs and jackals to Anubis, serpents and eels to Atum, beetles to Kephra, and bulls to Apis. And so there's like a bull there. Um, there's also like a little monkey thing. I was looking at that. Babi or Baba in ancient Egyptian religion was the deification of the baboon. One of the animals present in ancient Egypt. His name is usually translated as bull of the baboons, roughly meaning chief of the baboons. And then this eight-armed statue in the background also caught my eye. I was thinking that might be Shiva or Krishna, but it could also be Durga, which we know was referenced uh, with Ashley Strode, right? Durga is the goddess that she calls upon to give her strength, so... I just love all these references, and I was trying to think of how they could tie into some of the other stories that we've read. Cool. So, uh, what'd you guys think of this story? What'd you guys think of the of the art? Well, obviously, you know, great story. I'm definitely intrigued. Uh, the art took me uh, took me a little off guard at the beginning, but once I kind of got into the story, I it just uh, I just really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it's just it's it's different than the last couple of stories we've been reading, but I, I actually I actually really enjoyed it. I love the way that. Uh, just really drew uh, Sinclair's face when he's all like mad. He's like, "I am not telling you anything." It's like, <laughs> I was just like, "Holy shit, man!" That that was like really cool. Uh, but yeah, and I and like you said, and like you just mentioned, like Panya's face kind of looking like a skull. I was just like, "Whoa, that's actually really cool. That's a nice take on that." Um, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what she's going to do in the story. How is she going to assist Ed Gray? What's their going What's going to be their connection? Are they going to allude to stuff from Devil You Know? Um, yeah, so I'm just interested in all this stuff. And again, like, what is this device? It kind of reminds me of the sledgehammer armor. It's going to have something to do with Vril, probably. So, yeah, pretty cool. I like this. Um, I like these characters in the Ed Gray story, and I like that we get a we're getting a bunch of them all at once, back to back. This is really fun to go through these stories. And um, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's fun stuff. It's uh, Adventures of Sir Edward Grey, and, and now Ponya's in there, and that's fun and exciting to have Ponya show up. I think it's interesting that they got together, and they're like, you know what we could do is we could have Ponya in here. Oh, yeah, we could, couldn't we? And then they were like, well, let's just do it. Yeah. It's good stuff. I like that. They could give us more Ponya It's like excellent, that. yeah. I, I never thought that she could pop up in Ed Grey, but the timeline totally lines up, so... You know, why not? And, you know, she's a fan favorite. And Spinoff series, in order to survive and remain interesting and relevant to readers, you got to throw shit like that in there yeah. from time to time. Yeah. Not that Sir Edward Grey can't carry 
a book, he clearly can. But it's like you said, they've built up their they've built up their own cast of characters. But every once in a while, you gotta you gotta uh, throw in a uh, throw in a ringer, you know, throw in a guest star. There you go, and that's how you make a witch finder. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's right. All right, so uh, I can't wait to listen to all the listener feedback. Thank you again for being patient with us getting back on track. We what, just needed a week off, guys. Yeah. We didn't we didn't sleep for a week. It was yeah. horrible. It was uh, it, it was rough, but we're all good now. We're doing great, and so glad to be doing the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. It's Aubrey. All right, everybody. That was a really cool story, and we can't wait to hear what you guys think. You can send us a hey you damn guys at hellboybookclub at gmail.com and follow us on facebook at hellboy book club podcast and on instagram and twitter at hellboy book club you can also find all of our resources on our facebook about section our podbean website and our link trees on instagram and twitter as always a special thank you to paul from gotahan for the wonderful theme and also thank you to andrew adair for the Witchfinder theme and always a special thank you to mark for helping john with the reading order john for doing all the wonderful editing uh and danielle for just being pretty badass uh <laughs> you can find the podcast on podbean apple podcast spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcast from next week we are continuing Witchfinder, 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 the gates of heaven issues three through five so you know what to do keep those trades out don't put those back issues away just yet and join us next time on the hellboy book club podcast thanks for listening everybody i'm john salinas i'm danielle and I'm Aubrey Loveless saying, which find the electric eye of science. Yes. Yes. <laughs> awesome. That's not my particular hinkle pink.